Will you be the most notorious pirate or the greatest hero to have ever sailed the Spanish main? Well, let's find out with Sid Meier's Pirates, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 54 of the Upper Memory Block podcast, long-awaited episode 54, and I am back after a little bit of a, a delay to uh, to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP era with you. So right off the top, I have to uh, deeply, deeply apologize for the big delay getting uh, getting this show out. Uh, had a little bit of an issue kind of over the last uh, two weeks. I guess about two Mondays ago, I got out of bed in the morning and... Uh, my my vision out of my right eye was kind of a little bit fuzzy, I guess I, you, you could describe it as. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't really think too much of it that day. I was kind of like, yeah, maybe something happened. Maybe I had a little infection or something and blah, blah, blah. I went to work, did my thing, came home, still kind of fuzzy, went to bed, woke up the next morning, still kind of fuzzy. And, uh, you know, maybe even a little bit more fuzzy. So went through that day, said, oh, you know, it's it's a thing. It'll it'll pass, blah, blah, blah. Come Wednesday, this has been going on about three days. So this is, I guess, Wednesday, not this week, but last week. And I am kind of decided that I should probably get it checked out. So uh, I did what, you know, the, the easy solution. I contacted my... Uh, my eye doctor, my my optometrist, the people that used to give me glasses before I had LASIK, and uh, you know was able to get something for Thursday. Went in on Thursday, and they poked and prodded me every which way, and said basically the conclusion was um, I think something's wrong with your eye, but I don't know what it is. So we're gonna refer you to an ophthalmologist, and you know we'll get back to you in about a week, and you know you'll probably get an appointment with a specialist in a couple of months because that's how these things work. And um, I went home, <laughs> and I was kind of like hmm. Well, maybe it'll still pass. And then Friday came, sitting at work, worse, a little bit of eye pain, really couldn't see properly. You know, I could see enough to drive and I could see the screen, but, you know, my, my computer screen was very glowy and, and things like that. So I finally kind of freaked out a little bit and said, you know what, I need to know what the hell's going on. So uh, I went to the emergency room. They said I wasn't about to have a stroke. Thank you, WebMD, for telling me I may be having a stroke. And um, sent me to an ophthalmologist and, and blah, 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 which I got into the day after. And it turns out I have a thing called pigment uh, pigment dispersion syndrome. So apparently the colored part of my eye, the iris, is overcurved. And it rubs on the... This is gross. <laughs> it rubs on the... Uh, the little muscle fibers that hold your, your eye lens in and little colored pieces flake off of my iris and float around in my eye, which apparently is not a huge deal, except every once in a while it, uh, it flares up and your eye kind of becomes like a snow globe. So if you shake up your head, the little colored flecks start floating around in your eye and, uh, and obscure your, your vision a little bit. So, uh, that's what I've been dealing with the past little while. The past week, uh, I've just basically been Staying away from computers, which has been very, 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 very difficult for someone like me to do. Uh, obviously, aside from work, because I'm a programmer. So, frankly, I have to look at a computer most of the day. But, uh, you know, usually at night, I'll go home, do some gaming, do some research for the show, and and blah, blah, blah. So, I'd been kind of putting that off until I got a bit better. And, you know, there's still a slight amount of uh, of cloud in, in, 
in my vision, but it's gotten a lot better. I don't have a headache anymore, blah, blah, blah. So I was finally able to suck it up and put the show together and, and record for you guys. So I just wanted to thank everyone before I got into things. I'm probably blathering on way too long. Because, uh, you know, I did really feel bad for uh, for not being able to get the show out. But, you know, people on the Facebook group and people on Twitter were all very, very supportive and very fine saying, you know, your health is more important and don't worry about the show. We'll still be there when you get back and blah, blah, blah. So I just wanted to, like I said, thank everyone for for being great and being awesome and uh, and give me the chance that I needed to uh, to get better so I could put together the show and get it out to you and get back to gaming and doing all the awesome stuff that I love to do in my quote unquote Spare time. So enough of that. Enough of me doing this. And uh, let's move on with things. So now normally I do talk about the news. But um, I've kind of been thinking as of late. It's a very reflective show so far. <laughs> I've kind of been thinking as of late. A lot of pe- The one thing I, that people always tell me about the show is uh, that every episode is timeless. You know, you can go back and listen to them whenever you want because, you know, the games, it's not like the games are changing or anything like that. But uh, the one thing that kind of sticks out from... Uh, the timelessness of the shows is is the news. So I'm kind of thinking for the next little while I'm going to I'm going to drop the news from the show. If you want to read the news, I'm still going to be posting stuff I find and people post stuff they find on the uh on the Facebook group and on Twitter and all that stuff. And maybe I'll start posting a bit more to the website, who knows. But um I'm going to leave it out and uh if you think I should put it back in, let me know, drop me a line, even all the various ways to contact the show, but um We'll see how it works out. It also makes the shows a little shorter, which is nice. So uh, no news. A bunch of stuff happened. Grim Fandango got confirmed, blah, blah, blah. But I figure it's also been so long since the last episode. There's a whole whack of news, and I'm just going to waste too much time talking about it. So let's get right to uh, some emails, as we tend to do. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So our first email is from Eddie, and Eddie writes... Hey, thanks for covering Willie Beamish in your last episode. I had completely forgotten about this gem from my childhood. I remember watching my best friend play it and being amazed at the visual style of the game. I tried playing this game myself, but wasn't ever able to complete it because I could never stand games that actually had passing time be a condition of success or failure, uh, such as uh, this game and the Dagger of Amun-Ra, though I loved watching my buddy play that game as well. Thanks for an awesome podcast and can't wait for the next one. Well, thank you, Eddie, and... um, you know, Willie Beamish, despite the fact that it was, a, well, I guess, a Dynamics game, but also a Sierra game, especially an adventure game, uh, a lot of people never really heard of it. And frankly, I don't even remember how I came across it. I think one of my friends had it, and I borrowed it from him or something like that. But it, I don't feel like these Dynamics adventures were ever very well promoted. And, uh, and it's unfortunate because, like I said, the game, yes, is... A, somewhat childlike and and maybe that's on purpose and maybe that's not but there's a lot of really cool stuff about it and i did like kind of the whole approach of uh of needing to consider the the consequences of your actions you aren't just doing the thing that's required of you to be done to get to the next part of the game there there's different ways to do things and different results from doing those things so thanks for that email really great glad you're listening Next, we have an email from Alex, and he writes, Hey, buddy, I'm a huge fan of your podcast all the way over here in Australia. You're among my favorite old-school gaming shows and the only one out of those that really sinks its teeth into adventure games. I'm wondering if you have any plans to cover the Quest for Glory games. Cheers, Alex. Thanks, Alex. And yes, I, I definitely do have plans to cover the Quest for Glory games. That and Larry, I believe, are the only two kind of bigger Sierra franchises I haven't really touched yet at least from the adventure gaming space. And um, 
yeah, I, I was I wasn't a huge Quest for Glory player. I think I played the later games, like three and four or four and five. If there was a five, I'm bad. Someone's gonna send me an email. I'm sorry, <laughs> but uh, yes, definitely very important. I'm also playing Quest for Infamy right now, which I'm having a lot of fun with. It's not definitely a, it's not a Quest for Glory sequel, but it's definitely inspired by those games, and and it was really cool, you know, with the way that it integrated adventure and kind of RPG elements and all that. So definitely a show on Quest for Glory. Thank you for the email, and uh, and thanks for letting me know that uh, you like it that I sink my teeth into adventure games. Arr. And finally, uh, we have an email from Chris, and this is actually the first part of his email because the first half of his email kind of had to do with older stuff, and the second half had to do with this week's topic. So this is the first half. He writes, Chris writes, Greetings, Joe. I find myself as a passenger on an airplane for a change, and I figured I'd take this opportunity to write in about your last few episodes. I didn't want to go too far into the Wayback Machine, but I feel compelled to say a few words about Rebel Assault. Star Wars, well, Star Wars will always hold a special place in my heart, as it was the first movie I ever saw in a theater. When Empire Strikes Back was released, one of the local theaters lined up a double feature, running A New Hope and Empire back-to-back with a brief intermission. I only made it through the first movie as I was quite young, but it didn't matter. What a memory. Growing up, I encountered the coin-op and 8-bit Star Wars offerings as well, and, well, what can I say? I wasn't impressed. X-Wing and TIE Fighter changed all that, providing immersive gameplay and believable entry into the Star Wars universe. Uh, That said, I remember thinking at a young age, I wonder if someone could simply make a game out of the best parts of the Star Wars movies. At some point prior to the release of Rebel Assault, the demo appeared. I'm pretty sure that it came on one of the game magazine pack-in CD-ROMs, Computer Gaming World perhaps, and while I did read these magazines often, I hadn't heard anything about the game before seeing the demo. Into the CD-ROM drive it went, and after watching it, I knew I was going to break the piggy bank to buy the game when it came out. The music wasn't an ad-lib or MIDI soundtrack, it was the real thing. Speech sound, the speech sounded great, and the glow from the X-Wing's engines looked like it did in the movies, even at 320 by 200 Yes, the demo was heavy on cutscenes, but I realized that LucasArts had finally done what I had asked so long ago, and for this reason, despite its many flaws, I really enjoy Rebel Assault. I'll only say a bit about Willy Beamish, as I've taken a heap of good-natured abuse over the years for my opinion on this game. Back in the day, a friend let me borrow his copy after he was finished with it, and I just couldn't get into it. I found the interface frustrating, didn't like the art style, and even the music bugged me. I'm not the only I'm not one I'm not one really to detest games either, but for some reason, Willy just didn't work. This game is obviously beloved by many people, and thanks to your podcast and the passage of time, I resolved to give it another try and I hope to change my mind. Thanks, as always, for the excellent and thorough coverage in the episode. Dynamics in Sierra history is always of great interest and particularly compelling at that point in time, 1991 or so. So that's the first half of Chris's email. Thank you a lot for that. And and yeah, I mean, Rebel Assault is just too much. Like, I remember, like, now, fine, I look back at the first game and it's 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 chunky and the, the animation is very, very kind of inconsistent. And, you know, some of the characters look great. Some of them look awful. Some of them are digitized actors. Some of them aren't. But at the time, it was such an incredible looking game. It just, it was, it was groundbreaking. It was great. And I, for a long time, even right up until I think I played it for, for that show, um, thought it was a beautiful, beautiful looking game and kind of a a benchmark for, for other games to strive for. And at the time it most certainly was. And as for Willie Beamish, Hey, 
everyone's entitled to their opinion. I don't like certain games on this show. I st- I'm still getting flack from, <laughs> was it Martin probably, uh, for the Wing Commander SNES edition. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you're definitely entitled to your to your opinion, even if it's an older opinion. And, uh, you know, if you, if you go back and, and play it, drop me a follow-up and, and let me know if you changed your mind or if you didn't. All right, so that's it for emails for the moment. Let's get on to the main event. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for So this week, I will be discussing our second Sid Meier game, Sid Meier's Pirates! Exclamation <laughs> point. Uh, depending on how you look at it, there are either one or three games in this series, maybe even four if you, if you start looking uh, pretty far into the future. Uh, Pirates was developed and published by Microprose and released in the year 1987. So this is a slightly older game than uh, others I've been covering in, uh, in the last uh, quite a few episodes. So as we do, let's talk genre. So Pirates is one of these, kind of like Railroad Tycoon, one of these hybrid sort of Sid Meier-ish games. Uh, so Pirates is considered an action-adventure strategy simulation, even a little bit hybrid. Uh, First, let's focus on action-adventure. So an action-adventure game combines elements of adventure gaming, that is, accomplishing a task in a somewhat story-driven and cinematic manner, with elements of action gaming. Now, these action elements uh, can consist of basically anything, but generally they involve some form of combat versus one or many enemies. Uh, The action-adventure genre, I think I've mentioned before, is kind of one of the broadest in gaming today. As long as you've got action pieces tied together with some modicum of story, you can claim membership in the action-adventure genre. It's sort of a catch-all. Like, if you're not a first-person shooter with a bit of story, if you're not, you know, a combat RPG, if you're not anything, if you don't fit in any of those buckets and there's action, kind of combat-oriented stuff in in your game, you're an action-adventure. Hooray! Now, the other big side of Pirates is that it's also a strategy game. Now, we've seen quite a few strategy games throughout the life of the show, but not exactly like this. Um, Overall, strategy games emphasize skillful thinking and planning to achieve victory. Uh, Strategy elements require skill and forethought that are put into things like economic matters, uh, resource allocation, logistics, and even combat situations. Uh, Pirates also, at least in my experience, uh, trends toward a more real-time type of strategic simulation where things happen, events occur, combat happens, regardless of uh, the time you as the player take to perform other actions or come to decisions. The world goes on whether you are ready for it or not. But enough about the general, because it's hard to be general about this very kind of unique combination. Let's get into the story. So Pirates is an attempt to recreate the life of a pirate captain sailing the Spanish main between 1560 and 1700. The first page of the game manual describes the world pretty effectively, so I will just go through it right here. And it reads, It was an era of new kings and empires, of new tests of strength and power. It was a day when a man could rise from humble beginnings and be knighted for brave and daring service to the crown. Now you can be such a man in Pirates, a game of hot-blooded swashbuckling along the Spanish main. 
You are transported to the Caribbean, as it was in the heyday of smugglers, privateers, buccaneers, and pirates. All the skills real men needed for survival and success are present in real-time action. In Pirates, there's an exclamation point. That's why I say it like that. The name of the game is Pirates with an exclamation point. Anyways, back to the book. In Pirates, you navigate the wide Caribbean by guess, compass, and occasional sun sights with your astrolabe. In Peace or Battle, your sailing skill can spell the difference between a profitable journey and a watery grave. And if it comes to battle, you must do what real buccaneer captains did. Lead your men from the front, sword in hand, until you meet and defeat the enemy commander. This is a new type of game, an action simulation. Your game activities are based on how men actually did them, such as sailing ships and dueling with swords. The Caribbean is a canvas of grand adventure, from the treasure-laden ambushes of Sir Francis Drake to the piratical plunderings of the notorious Henry Morgan, whose name still graces a brand of Jamaican rum. Like these men, you can discuss politics with provincial governors, sneak into towns for clandestine smuggling arrangements with local merchants, cross swords with vicious noblemen of all nationalities, rescue helpless waifs from the vile slave plantations, even find a beautiful wife. When you accumulate sufficient treasure, land, honors, and satisfaction, you can take a pleasant retirement to appropriate your gains. End quote. That was fun. So while I don't consider this game a simulation really in kind of the game genre sense of the word, as we've heard, this is a simulation of the life of a pirate in the heyday of classic piracy that we see in the movies. Uh, Like many other quote unquote real life simulations uh, we've seen, such as SimCity and other things like that, uh, aside from the very rich and very well-researched world we are dropped into, and a modicum of setup text that we'll discuss in the next section. This is another instance where the story is what you make of it. It's up to you to craft your own background, your own story, and your own attitude. Are you a bloodthirsty pirate pillaging and plundering indiscriminately? Are you a businessman? Are you loyal to a specific power supporting the needs of provincial governors? Or do your loyalties change with the winds left, right, and center? Uh, you know, I've spoken about this before, and I saw people that have written in and, and other, other listeners to the show, but in many ways, this can be the best way to play a game. Within the framework of this world, you can do anything you want and be whoever you want. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, time to talk gameplay. Launching the game, we can tell right away that this is definitely an older one than, like I said, those I generally cover. After some credits, without music on the DOS version, I might add, you choose your graphics fidelity, CGA, Tandy, or EGA, uh, how many floppy drives your machine has, and whether or not you're going to be controlling things with your joystick or just with the keyboard. You're then presented with three options. You can start a new career, continue a saved career, or command a famous expedition. Now, since we're going to talk about career mode in great detail, we'll skim over the famous expeditions a little bit right now. So these are sort of canned scenarios, which put you in the position of famous pirates at different time periods throughout the age of piracy. The 1987 DOS version of the game contains six expeditions of varying difficulties. Now, depending on your role, the political situation and forces deployed against you will decide how you should proceed. Usually the choice is kind of between trying to make your money via peaceful trade or via piracy or some combination thereof. Uh, These scenarios are all well and good, but if you're new, you should probably aim for a career 
to kind of start things out. A career gives you the opportunity to build your pirate fleet from scratch. Uh, selecting this option from the main menu allows you to set up your game. Now, your first choice is selecting a historical period in which to set your game. Now, there's six time periods available spanning from 1560 to 1680. These are the Silver Empire in 1560, Merchants and Smugglers in 1600, the New Colonists in 1620, the War for Profit in 1640, the Buccaneer Heroes in 1660, and the Pirates Sunset in 1680. Now, each of these time periods presents a different set of challenges or advantages to your new pirate captain. Uh, for example, the first time frame, the Silver Empire, presents us a world where the Spanish Empire is at its peak. All colonies in the Spanish main, except for one, are controlled by Spain, which means that all major ports of trade are controlled by the Spanish, and if you're not friendly to the Spanish, might be a bit of a challenge. Uh, other European powers are in the area, attempting to take some of Spain's colonies, but uh, they haven't been successful as of yet. As a fledgling pirate, this is a very challenging time period to choose. Now, the default time frame, which is recommended for beginners, is 1660, the Buccaneer Heroes. The 1660s are the peak of swashbuckling adventure in the Caribbean. Uh, Spain's power has reached and kind of passed its lowest point, and they're kind of back on the upswing. However, they're still weak, but have many newly wealthy colonies primed for plunder. So basically, as you go from the earliest time period to the latest time period, is kind of a fairly steadily decline in uh, Spain's power and in the ownership of, uh, in Spain's ownership of the majority of, of Spanish colonies. So in 1660, uh, other European colonies abound, as do many, many men in each port looking to join pirate crews. This is the golden age. For my playthroughs, this is the time I chose, because as I'm fond of saying, frankly, I'm not very good at playing games, as you can tell from my, uh, my YouTube playthroughs. So after you choose a time frame, you get to choose your nationality. Your options are English Buccaneer, French Buccaneer, Dutch Adventurer, or Spanish Renegade. Not all roles are available in all time periods. Uh, your nationality determines your status at the start of the game, uh, which port you start in, what type and how many ships you have, your reputation with all the various powers, and how much wealth you have initially. Uh, English Buccaneer tends to be the easiest as they receive the most support from their national government. Uh, however, they also have the least freedom to act without upsetting that national government. So you do something that the English don't really agree with, meh, they don't like you so much. The French provide slightly less support, but they offer much greater freedom to act against other countries. Now, the Dutch, traditionally, at least in, in the role of history, uh, took on a more peaceful role as traders, though they occasionally would be known to supplement that trade with uh, some light piracy, if you will. And finally, acting as a Spanish renegade is a very challenging choice. So you start off in a very weak position without any support from any nation because, well, the S Spain doesn't like piracy and uh, you don't have the support of anyone else behind you because you're Spanish and no one else likes you either. So once you choose who you are, again, I chose English Buccaneer because it's easy mode. Uh, you get to select your last name and your difficulty level. Your last name, text box, type in whatever you want. I typed in UMBcast, which doesn't really make sense. But anyways, uh, difficulty levels in the game are interesting in that they don't just determine how much damage you take in battle or how hard combat is or anything like that. What it really defines is how skilled and effective your crew is. In early levels, like I can't remember what the first one is, but in easy 
or maybe it's begin. Oh, journeyman. That's the first one. Uh, your sailing master, basically kind of like the chief of your ship, uh, is an old sea dog who basically tells you everything you need to know. If you have trouble figuring out where you are, he'll give you an accurate dead reckoning position of, you know, I think we're here and it's usually pretty right. Um, on top of that, he tells you everything else that you should be doing, how to sail, where to go, what you should do next. Um, as you increase to the top difficulty level of Swashbuckler, your crew progressively becomes drunker and less helpful. Now, the trade-off here is that the better your crew, the larger a cut they take when you split up the booty at the end of the game. The crabbier your crew, the more money you take for yourself. Finally, in defining your game and your captain and your character, your avatar, whatever you want to call it, you choose one special ability. You can be skilled at fencing, navigation, gunnery, medicine, or be witty and charming. These give you an advantage in one aspect of the game or another, and I think they're fairly self-explanatory. You're then ready to begin. So you're told your story up to this point. This is, these are those few lines of a flavor text that uh, really tells you uh, where you're at right when you start the game. And they go, young and poor, you seek your fortune in the new world. To purchase passage, you indenture yourself, binding you to work a sugar plantation for five years as payment. But on the plantation, your debts only grow. You decide to escape this life of debt slavery. You ask some local seamen about joining the Brethren of the Coast. I mate, they reply. The seamen are really buccaneers. In need of knowledge, they invite you to join their party, but the voyage is unprofitable. The men decide new leadership is required. They nominate you to duel the captain for command of the ship. So, you then duel the former captain in what I can only assume, at least from my limited experience, is uh, is a pretty one-sided fight, which you basically win pretty handily. And you're now the captain. Hooray! We're in the town of our starting port, and uh, when in town, there's a few actions that you can perform. You can visit the governor to get an update on the political situation, or if he doesn't like you, he'll demand some money to kind of wipe your record clean, or if he does like you, he may offer you rank or title. You can also visit the tavern to get more info or recruit more sailors uh, to your fleet, and you can also do business with local merchants. You can sell off cargo, you can buy goods such as food and cannon, and you can repair your ships. Of course, our next and most anticipated and probably most often used action for the rest of the game is to shove off with your ship or ships and sail the seas. The governor of your starting port will have given you the approximate locations of, I think, three, the three closest ports. Uh, That is, he'll basically tell you the general direction in which they lie, north, south, east, or west, and whether or not they're less than a day, a day, or more than a day's travel uh, from where, from your current location. Also, you'll be told who controls that colony. So it'll be, you know, this is this, the colony of blah is many days sailing to the West and it's controlled by the Spanish stuff like that. So you can then set sail. Now sailing is, is relatively straightforward, but there is a bit of a trick to it. These are sailing ships. So they travel via wind power. The prevailing winds in the Caribbean move from west to east, which means it's easier and faster to travel eastward with the wind than it is to travel west against the wind. As you sail, you will randomly encounter other ships. Uh, The arrow you selected will influence how many random encounters you actually experience. The later the period, the more shipping exists in the Caribbean. You can choose to investigate more closely or ignore the encounter and sail on. Now, usually 
you'll probably want to investigate the ship, see what's going down. Investigating reveals the nationality of the random ship. And depending on your location, you'll have a higher likelihood of encountering ships flying the flag of a particular country. If you're in French waters, you will likely encounter ships with French flags. This matters if you care about relations with a certain power or if you're trying to curry favor with them. Say you're trying to get in good with, keep running with my example, the French, because, you know, people like getting in good with the French, apparently. Attacking a ship, flying the French colors, if you're trying to get in good with the French, probably won't help your cause with local French governors. Now, once you identify the ship's allegiance, a few things can happen. If you want to bypass the encounter, you can simply sail away. Otherwise, you can hail them for news. This will give you an update on the political situation in the Caribbean. And this is important because the political situation, as we'll discuss a little bit later on, can change on at the drop of a hat. Finally, if you're feeling up to it, you can close in for battle. Now, if the ship turns out to be a pirate or a pirate hunter, you usually don't get the choice. They will likely automatically close in for battle. And when the battle is joined, you're given a rundown of your forces in kind of two two or three kind of references. So you're told how many men you have, you're told your total number of available cannon, and you're also asked to choose which ship in your fleet will be your flagship. Now, this is the ship which will actually fight the battle. Each ship class unsurprisingly, has certain attributes. Some, such as the smaller sloop or frigate, or the one that starts with P that I can never say properly, Pinas, Pinachi, I don't know. You guys can tell me. Anyways, those guys, they're, they're, they're quick and light, and they're designed for kind of quick slashing attacks. They don't carry tons of cannons. Uh, larger galleons or merchantmen can mount more cannon and carry more men and carry more cargo. However, they're slow, and they can actually be overwhelmed by a smaller, faster opponent. And different ship types also have different performance and different wind and ocean conditions. You know, some excel in choppy seas, others in calm seas. So it is actually very beneficial for you to know of the ships you have available to you, which are good in which situation, which wind condition, which sea condition against which, you know, other ship, things like that. So once you select your flagship, the battle is joined. Now your best bet is to try and cross the path of your enemy with your side facing their front or back. This is referred to, I believe, in naval tactics, which surprisingly I learned from a Star Wars book, as crossing the T. So basically, you will cross your broadside, your side, to the front or the back of the enemy ship. This exposes the highest number of your guns, known as a full broadside, to the smallest number of enemy guns, since most ships didn't mount forward or rear facing cannons or if they did there were very very few in this game it's actually not done at all all your cannons of any ship in this game face to the left or right none to the front or back now your speed is controlled both by the wind direction and the status of your sails so when you enter battle by default your sails are set to what is called battle sails which means the uh, the main sails are mostly furled which lowers your top speed, increases your maneuverability, and protects your precious mainsails from damage from cannon fire. You do have the option of unfurling and going to what is called full sails if you need to gain some speed to close in on the enemy. But you got to be very careful here because basically one volley from the enemy will generally result in sail damage, and damage can only be repaired in a port. Now, with all that in mind, fight, blah, 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 shoot your cannons, they reload... 
At the end of the day, battle can end in a few ways. First, of course, there's escape. Now, you or your opponent can sail away from the engagement. Basically, just try and get far enough away from the other guy, and the battle ends. You can also end a battle by damaging the enemy enough so that they raise the white flag and they surrender. Otherwise, instead of taking the naval gunnery approach and just wearing them down until they give up, you can run your ship right into the enemy, which results in what is known as a grapple and boarding. Here you lead your men into battle by hooking onto their ship, swinging across on ropes, and taking the fight to the enemy. Now, the tide of this boarding action is controlled by a few elements. While your men fight in the background, you take on the enemy captain in a one-on-one duel. You have the option of selecting from a few different types of swords, ranging from heavy and slow, like the broadsword, to to light and fast, like the rapier. Uh, Your life is basically represented by the number of men you have. Generally, starting off with more men than the enemy has results in a win, unless you're very unlucky. Uh, Your efforts in the duel contribute to the morale of your men. Men of higher morale will kill more of the enemy. You take a hit, and their morale goes down. Score one, and it goes up. Eventually, you either fight the last man, or you wait until the enemy captain surrenders. If you lose, you get captured. Generally, you get imprisoned. Some amount of time passes, and your men get you released so you can resume play, kind of just losing out on, uh, on some time. If you win, however, you get to choose what to do with the, the booty, if you will. Uh, you always select which cargo to take from your ship and transfer into your holds. Now, it's generally recommended to, uh, to sell off some stuff every once in a while to keep your holds empty so you can you know, take all the plunder. Uh, this is one of the main ways to make money in the game. You capture cargo and you sell it to merchants at your various ports of call. Now, once you decide what you want to take with you, you decide what to do with the ship. You can choose to take the enemy ship as a prize. Now, depending on how damaged the ship is and how valuable, you know, if it's a much better ship than what you already have in your fleet, this may be worthwhile or not. It's really one of those case-by-case things, depending on your strategy, how you're playing the game, blah, blah, blah. Also note that doing this means you'll have to put what is known as a prize crew on the enemy ship. Now this, I can't remember if it's like 20 men or something like that at least, or maybe it depends on ship type, I'm not entirely sure, but this obviously has the net effect of reducing the number of men you have on each of your ships, and if you reduce your crews enough so that there aren't enough sailors to properly man all positions, you might have trouble with performance in battle, you'll definitely have not be able to uh, to man all of your cannons, so maybe if your ship carries 12 cannons, and you don't have enough crew, you might only be able to use four or six of them, things like that. Uh, the other option, if you either don't want the ship, don't need the ship, don't have enough men to take the ship, is to simply pillage and sink the, uh, the enemy ship. So that's sort of how things go. You sail, you battle, you collect cargo, you sell it. This is an open world game. It's probably not the earliest open world games, but it's definitely one of the earlier open world games that I know about. What you do, and how you do it, is generally up to you. Aside from the world-defining elements you choose in the beginning, other aspects of the game are totally randomly generated. Now, the most noticeable random element is definitely, as I said a little bit before, the political situation, the relations between the different countries. These relations are random. Which countries are in states of alliance or outright war with each other? Uh, This is set randomly at the start of the game and shifts at any time during play. 
usually having two countries at war with each other is pretty helpful to you as it's easier to gain favor with one side simply by attacking their enemies. It's a great way to gain rank with a particular power and even eventually be introduced to a governor's daughter whom you can marry for even more prestige on top of your lands and titles and and all that stuff if you kind of really commit to uh, to one to, to one power to kind of supporting them. And you don't need to do that. You can start off supporting England and then change your mind and, and support Spain or support you know the Dutch. You can do that. It's totally open world. There's really no penalty to you aside from, well, you're probably not going to gain super high in rank with any particular one if you kind of spread it around. Now, if the country you're trying to support isn't at war, it's a little bit more challenging to gain favor with them. Let's say, you know, the only way you'll really be able to do that is by uh, capturing sinking pirate ships, which you don't run into all that often, other pirate ships, and also by... uh, capturing pirates and delivering them to uh, to colonial governors. So it's obviously a little bit less of a common thing, so it's harder to gain prestige in that manner. Now, another random element in the game is the statistics of the various towns, ports of call, whatever you want to call them. Uh, their wealth and their populations constantly fluctuate, which can definitely affect your plans to trade with them or attack them. All these random factors change as you play the game, and there's no announcements or indications or anything like that that these are occurring. You have to stay on your game, you know, keep getting information from other passing ships, give people money in ports a call to get information about kind of farther off colonies to see if it's worthwhile going to them, and basically just generally keep your ear to the ground to know what's going on, very much like I'm sure it was back in the, uh, in the 15, 16, 1700s. Now, the game ends when you decide to split up the plunder with your crew and to effectively retire from your life of pirating. Uh, the longer you play, uh, the more the health of your avatar declines, and I think it declines at a fairly steady rate unless you chose to be skilled at medicine and then your health kind of will last a bit longer, so it's a good thing to choose if you plan on playing a longer game. But when your health gets to a certain point, your crew and governors and basically everyone you talk to kind of starts to recommend that you retire. Like, you know what? You're not looking too good. You should probably stop pirating because I think something bad's going to happen to you. Now, you don't have to listen to them because you're a mighty pirate. But the game will start to become consistently more challenging until such a point where it's almost impossible to, to proceed because your health is so poor. So that's really all I'm going to discuss in detail about the game. I mean... There's so much more in here. This is, it, it's a surprisingly deep and massive, wide, I don't know what you want to call it, game in terms of different kinds of gameplay. I mean, there's overland travel, which I haven't really talked about. In addition to the sea fighting, uh, you can assault towns from the land or you can attack forts from the sea. Basically, it's kind of a cool little sequence. I did it on YouTube where you say, I'm going to attack this fort from your ship. You see the fort, it fires cannon at you, you fire cannon at it. And then it's a very similar contest to kind of like uh, attacking a ship you approach the fort you swing onto it you fight the commander of the fort and you take it or you don't now there's also various methods of navigation which you use in conjunction with a paper map of the caribbean to figure out where you are either via dead reckoning of just kind of knowing where you are you can fiddle around with the astrolab which i haven't tried because it's complicated you got to kind of keep it underneath the sun and that way you can find your latitude it's 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 all very 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 cool and You know, despite the age of this game, the developers were able to create a world that felt very big, where things happened that had nothing to do with you or your actions. Like, the world was just going on around you. It really, really was 
a feat. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, tech focus time. One of my favorite parts of the show because I like being a huge nerd. So since we're back in 1987, the system requirements are a little bit more rudimentary, let's say, than, uh, than I've been talking about as of late. Also, something to keep in mind, which will be important later, is that this game was originally designed for the Commodore 64 and was ported to DOS shortly after the initial release. So to play the PC version of Pirates, you needed at least an 8088 CPU. Now that's basically an IBM PC or compatible. So if you had a PC, you could play this game. Uh, it needed to be running at a whopping 10 megahertz, oh my lord, and needed uh, either just the base 640K of RAM or maybe it did need up to one meg. I found some conflicting reports on that, so I've learned my lesson. I'm just gonna say both of them and uh, I'll leave it at that. Now the game supported, as I said at the beginning, three graphics modes. Firstly, we have CGA at four colors and a 320 by 200 resolution. Now, I may have this wrong, but my understanding of CGA, the color graphics array, is that it could access a total palette of 16 colors. However, it could only use four of those colors at one time, which is why we call it CGA for color. I believe it had to do with the way colors were being addressed and resolution was being addressed and how the mapping of colors to areas on the screen uh, was done by the CGA adapter. Now, it also supported Tandy graphics, which was basically CGA, but it could access all 16 of those colors at once. Finally, the big guy, EGA graphics, which again ran at 320 by 200 like the other two, and was able to access 16 colors like Tandy, but it wasn't tied to a particular platform like the Tandy graphics were. I also remember the Tandys were... They always impressed me for some reason because I always remember I'd be walking through the mall and they'd always have a Tandy set up right in the door of Radio Shack. And it was always playing some awesome like multimedia cutting edge for the time graphical thing and playing music or something, which my PC couldn't do. It had a crappy PC speaker. And at least in the time of the PC and even our trying to think our 286 might have had a color, might have had color graphics. But yeah, I mean, that Tandy was like incredible looking. But graphics aside, sound in the PC version was exclusively output via the PC speaker. All the effects were very rudimentary, including the music, which I was able to chop out kind of this, but it's all kind of very small music snippets, something like this. It's kind of catchy. Other versions, including the original Commodore 64 version, have much more music, it's much better, but that PC version, while the sound is fairly abysmal. So one more interesting technical aspect of this game, which may have to do, like I said, with its Commodore 64 roots, is that the first DOS port of this game was what is known as a PC booter. Now, I've never discussed this before, and frankly, it's because I never had much experience with them. A PC booter is basically a piece of software which was loaded into memory and executed at, uh, at boot time, thereby bypassing the loading of the host computer's operating system. Now, why was the DOS version created this way? Well, bootable floppies were a very common way to distribute Commodore 64 and Amiga games. Now, this was done for a few reasons. Firstly, 
it was to bypass the loading of the Amiga's operating system so that more resources would be made available to the game. I believe Amiga OS. I didn't have an Amiga, so Amiga people let me know. But Amiga OS was, was fairly heavy. So if you loaded that into memory, there was quite a bit of it taken up and less available to, to the game. Now, secondly, it was not very straightforward to create copies of these PC booters without external tools since the booters were often using kind of non-standard formatting and non-standard file systems because they didn't need to be compatible with DOS. They just needed to boot on a DOS-compatible computer. And this was also a fairly effective means of disk-based copy protection. There was no way for this disk to be read or loaded from within the OS because it was not using, you know, I think even at the time in early DOS, it was FAT, the file allocation table, file system, which, you know, isn't really in use anymore. It's been replaced by NTSC, but, you know, you put a disk in the drive, the OS looks at it, says, well, this doesn't have a file allocation table. There's nothing on here. It's corrupt. Bah. Now, PC booters also added a little bit of console-like ease of use to, uh, to these games. You put the disk in, you turn it on the computer, and boom, the game loaded and was running. At the time, when most PCs ran kind of similar hardware and had similar capabilities, the customization of a pure, you know, kind of traditional installer wasn't really needed. Now, the downside of this was that the developers needed to write their own drivers for what configurations they thought would exist since they were bypassing the abstraction layer of the operating system. There was no way to tell, you know, tell DOS, hey, you have a sound card, use this driver and just do stuff. You basically had to say to the sound card, because you you know, make this sound, do that, like very, very low level stuff, because you were basically writing your own OS along with the game. And the only other thing that was needed to make the game, or to, you know, to have a full and complete game experience, was a separate blank floppy disk for save games, which would be specially formatted at save time. They would either be inserted into a secondary floppy drive, or temporarily swapped with the game disk if you only had a single drive. This is why at the beginning, when you first boot up the game, you told, the, you told the game how many disk drives you had. So all that kind of very, very, very interesting. Again, PC booter is not something I really had a lot of experience with, but I could see uh, how they'd definitely be handy for, uh, for developers at the time. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, dev story time. Now, Sid Meier's Pirates is, of course, the brainchild of one Mr. Sid Meier. In fact, while Pirates is not the first game Sid ever worked on, it is the first of many games to carry his name in the title. Why? Well, as we'll see, this game is a little bit of a departure from what Sid Meier had done before. And so from a marketing perspective, they put his name in the game so that people who were fans of his previous work would pick it up, even though it might not have been of a genre or covering a topic that they may be traditionally interested in. So anyways, let's get down to uh, down to the history here. Since I haven't talked about a Sid Meier game since the summer of 2012 when I did uh, Railroad Tycoon, I guess we can roll back to the beginning with his story. Despite the fact I've discussed him before, I continuously forget that Sid Meier is Canadian. Uh, he was born in the city of Sarnia, Ontario, which is under a three-hour drive from my place here in Toronto. Of course, since you can basically spit into Michigan from Sarnia, Meyer eventually moved across the border and attended the, uh, the University of Michigan's computer science program. In addition to computer science, he also studied history, which will absolutely come into play in the development of pirates. 
Now, during his time at University of Michigan, which I promised myself, I would not confuse with Michigan State. Otherwise, my buddy Rico over at Trex and Sci-Fi will probably murder me. But uh, so at University of Michigan, Meyer spent time programming batch jobs and learning Fortran on the school's IBM 360 mainframe. He also got his hands on his very own first personal computer, an Atari 800. This is where he began experimenting with, let's say, rudimentary game development. He'd code up little games like Tic-Tac-Toe, a space game loosely based on Star Trek, other stuff like that. Uh, He even sold a Ziploc-bagged version of a Space Invaders-style game he made, though, according to Meyer, he sold less than 10 copies of it. Now, aside from programming and history, another thing Meyer was very passionate about was aviation. In the summer of 1982, some mutual friends introduced Meyer to Bill Steely, a retired military pilot. So they were all in Vegas, and, uh, and Steely didn't really know what to make of this computer guy. At least he didn't until Sid repeatedly beat him in the Atari arcade version of Red Baron. Meyer told Steely that he had analyzed the game's kind of rudimentary AI routines and confidently stated that he could build a better computer game than this piece of crap in one week. Steely went along with it and told Sid that, hey, if he could code it, Steely would sell it for him. Well, it ended up not taking a week. It actually took him about two months. But Meyer produced a game called Hellcat Ace, which is a World War II arcade flight sim where you pilot a Grumman F6F Hellcat fighter in various scenarios. You know, destroy the Japanese bomber, do this, do that. Steely went out on a single sales call with this new game and immediately sold 50 copies. The game became the first product of their new game development and publishing company called Microprose. By the company's second month of existence, it was already profitable and was hitting $10 million in sales by the end of 1986 after only four years in existence. Microprose quickly became known as the go-to purveyor of high-quality vehicle simulations, including games like Solo Flight, F-15 Strike Eagle, Silent Service, much more, many more games like that. Um, According to Meyer, as many game designers do, by the time a whole bunch of these games came out, and you know, it was like 1986-ish, he kind of felt like he wanted to stretch his creative wings a little bit. Now, another designer at Microprose named Arnold Hendrick threw out an idea. What about an adventure-type game about pirates? Now, Steely was not comfortable with this idea. In his mind, Microprose was known for vehicle sims. They were good at making vehicle sims. Their vehicle sims sell very well. So they should probably just keep making vehicle sims. Now, Meyer was not deterred. He liked this idea, and he got to thinking about how they could do it. He wanted to do something that was more story-based, or as he put it, more of a literary experience than his previous kind of, you know, mundane real-world situations or simulations. At the same time, when, you know, all these kind of back-and-forth discussions were going on, Meyer was working with the development side of his team on a cool technology for the C64. Now, that machine had the ability to take art assets, you know, images and things like that, that would otherwise be stored as massive bitmaps and convert them into fonts and store them as fonts. Now, this was a great way for them to store image data and have it be quickly and easily referenced in code. And he felt that this font kind of wrapper technology could really help him create this literary environment that he was envisioning for this pirate game. Now, Meyer was not a dumb guy, as we've obviously seen, you know, because of history. (laughs) 
So just because he'd been focusing on on simulations and, and military type stuff didn't mean that he didn't know what adventure games of the time were like. He absolutely did not want to create an adventure game where, you know, the goal was to pixel hunt and pick up every object on every screen and combine them together and figure out whether or not it was safe to go north or south or east or west from here at this point in time. He wanted his pirate adventure to be much more free-flowing than that. He wanted there to be some major plot points, which were very loosely tied together, but they were triggered not just because you got to that part of the game and this is the next logical thing that needs to happen to finish the story. He wanted these actions, these events to occur because of the actions that the player wanted to take, because of the actions that the player thought was interesting. So to flesh it out even more, they wanted to add aspects of role-playing. That is, you could craft your pirate, your hero, your avatar in any way that you wanted. This materialized in the final game as the options you select when starting off kind of a new career. Each experience would be different based on the type of pirate you were playing. Of course, the game also had to have some excitement to it. It couldn't just be sailing around and landing in port and, you know, making money. So the action elements were added and were personified again. In the final game, by the land and sea combat, the assaults on forts, the over, you know, the overland actions, all kinds of stuff like that. Now, they knew Developing this open-world style of gameplay was daunting, but in an interview, fairly recent interview with Adam Sessler, uh, Meyer put it this way. He said, and I quote, we didn't know why we couldn't do that, so we just did it, end quote. So on top of all this gameplay, a metric ton of historical research also went into the game. From maps, locations, and dispositions of colonies, to modeling performance of different types of ships, to the socio-political environment of each of the pirate ages, there was a lot of background information jammed into this game, both in the actual gameplay and the interactions in the game itself, and also in the accompanying documentation. Like other historical sims I've come across, this game makes learning about the age of piracy on the Spanish main easy to take in. It's not a history lesson, it's not very detailed, but I know that had I played this game when I was younger, you know, when I was like 10, 12 years old, it would have prompted me to do my own further reading on the time, just like the Dynamics Aces games made me go and read about the war in the Pacific and made me, you know, go read about the air war over Europe in World War II. Very, very interesting, very thought-provoking, and and frankly, even now when I'm, you know, I'm 33 years old and playing this game makes me want to go not watch Pirates of the Caribbean or something, but actually learn about what actually happened in that time. So Pirates released in 1987, and it was an immediate hit. Though it wasn't the first open-ended, open-world game, it was definitely the launching point for the Sid Meier microprose style of you know, open-ended, open-world games. Railroad Tycoon, which I've already discussed, and Civilization, which I haven't covered yet, uh, both build on the open-world systems that were developed in Pirates. Now, Pirates won many, many awards at the time and continues to you know to win more awards and make best of lists today even in the original version obviously the game was ported to many other platforms uh the pc booter version was one of the early ports and uh, soon enough a non-booter version also became available in 1993 pirates gold was released for uh for windows 3.1 dos mac os and the sega genesis the graphics were updated to VGA 256 colors, and uh, a new MIDI score was included. 
Now, the MIDI was was certainly better than the, the music we just heard in the tech focus, but uh, the music was still fairly rudimentary, featuring still fairly short snippets uh, here and there that sound a little something like this. definitely a lot better a lot more involved but um you know still quite um limited let's say in in length and kind of shorter loops and all that now this updated version featured uh, turn-based ground combat real-time sea combat and a bunch of new features it was it was it wasn't bad but if you want to hear really great music a version for the amiga cd32 was released in 1994 i'll be playing the end credits from that version at the end of the show because i really do think it's it's great it's a lot of fun it's it's very piratey in caribbean but also very 90s so uh, i think you guys will get a kick out of it so in 2004 yet another remake was done for windows xbox wii and the psp man the wii was out in 2004 that's a long time ago that was 10 years ago crazy now i do recall playing this 2004 version way back when and it's a very very good modern update in fact i recently came across a great article on pc gamer in a series that they have been doing lately called pixel boost now in this series they discuss how to up-res older games into hd and even into 4k the last one which came out just last week i think was about the 2004 version of pirates and damned if that game does not look great at 4k I will link that uh, link that article in the show notes because because uh, I think it's actually a really cool series and you should follow it even if uh, you know if you're interested in such things you should you should follow it even after you know when they're talking about other games. Uh, in 2008, a mobile version of the game was released. It made it onto uh, the BlackBerry in 2010 and iOS in 2011. Uh, I also have this version on my iPad and it's a very complete version, a fairly uh, fairly complete reproduction of the 2004 game modified for touch devices. So what does the future hold for pirates? Well, aside from this relatively recent mobile version, I I don't know of any new versions of uh, Sid Meier's Pirates, such as it is coming out. But to suffice it to say that almost any newer game, up to and including, in my opinion, Assassin's Creed Black Flag, contains some elements of inspiration from Sid Meier's Pirates. Okay, so where can we get Pirates today? Well, this is another simple one. You can get Pirates Gold Plus on GOG.com for $5.99 US. Now, this contains both the original DOS version and the 1993 Pirates Gold remake. In fact, I'm pretty sure that the DOS version is actually the original PC booter version, slightly hacked to, to you know work in DOSBox. I figured this is the case because there doesn't seem to be any way to actually exit the game aside from closing out the DOSBox window. In, in the PC booter to exit the game, you would actually have to just hit control out delete to reboot, pop out the game disc and boot into your normal OS. You, you couldn't just exit 
to DOS because DOS was never actually loaded into memory. Now, you can also grab the uh, 2004 Pirates from Steam for $9.99 USD. I haven't done that yet, but I kind of have the itch to, to play it, especially I especially want to try that Pixel Boost thing and see if I can boost it up to 1080p. As for mobile, Sid Meier's Pirates is $2.99 on the iOS App Store. It's also available on Windows Phone and in BlackBerry, but who the hell is a BlackBerry? Uh, I saw an article from 2012 saying that an Android version was coming, but I can't seem to find anything via Google. I don't have an Android device. So uh, any of you Android folks, uh, let me know if um, if there is an Android version of Sid Meier's Pirates that released, you know, kind of fairly recently. Okay, a couple more emails before we uh, before we wrap up. So here we have the second part of Chris's email that uh, we read the first part of right at the beginning of the show. And he continues. Now, on to pirates. It's difficult for me to keep all the versions straight because I've played this game across quite a few platforms, including the Atari 800, PC, and Sony PSP, all with fond memories. Pirates was an ambitious game, and like most Sid Meier titles, the game world really shines. Going from port to port, Sailing the open seas, engaging in cannon battle, and keeping track of who's at war with who is great fun. Sprinkle in some historical context, an an infamous pirate or two, and the recipe for a game that makes you lose all track of time spent in front of the computer is complete. Even in its early forms, Pirates did this, and remains one of my all-time favorites. Personally, it's my Red Baron of the Seas. Electronic Arts has a game with a similar narrative called Seven Cities of Gold. Like Pirates, I played it first in the 8-bit days. It focuses more on world exploration, but is also tremendously enjoyable. Unfortunately, I think the DOS version was relegated to the mid-80s CGA and PC speaker treatment. Seven Cities always comes to mind when Pirates is discussed. Thank you for all you do with the podcast. I can't think of a better way to enhance my memories of playing Pirates than a UMB-style dev story and tech focus. Keep on blocking Chris Olson at CGO Apps on Twitter. Well, thanks, Chris, for for those memories. And, uh, you know, so far, you're you're pretty much matching up memories with me. I never played Seven Cities of Gold, but I definitely know about it, and I've definitely heard of it, and I definitely remember seeing screenshots from it. And, uh, you know, it may be worth, uh, maybe worth looking into for uh, for a separate show. And actually, I, I must say... Um, Chris, a little while ago, guested on the Dos Nostalgia podcast, and uh, he and Anatoly, Mr. At Dos Nostalgia on Twitter, did an amazing rundown of uh, of Dos-based flight sims from from the early days, like Slow Flight, which I, I did mention, that's a Sid Meier game, up to uh, kind of the the pinnacle of uh, of Dos flight sims. Super, super detailed. If you guys are into flight sims at all, go check out the Dos Nostalgia podcast. I believe it's the last episode. That uh, you can find it on YouTube or on uh, on iTunes. Really, really, really great. Really detailed. Chris, you did a great job. Um, please go listen to that. Really great. Finally, something I haven't had in quite a while: a voicemail. I have a voicemail from Paul. And take it away, sir. Hi Joe, this is Paul Evans commenting on Pirates. I laid in with the Sid rendition of Pirates that I remember hearing on the Commodore 64, the version I spent the most time with. It came on a floppy, floppy disk. 
I downloaded and installed the GOG version of Pirates and tried out Twitch streaming. It was the first thing I Twitch streamed, so... Um, it was kind of funny uh, watching your YouTube back of your Twitch stream because we we both found the whole semen thing funny. <laughs> you got to think that was intentional. Anyway, uh, that version, the controls seem really sluggish with the fencing and even at sea. I wonder if it plays better on hardware of the day or if it's just the emulation from GOG. I remember the C64 experience being better the Amiga one too, but um, I don't know, maybe that's just me. The playthroughs on YouTube look pretty convincing, but there you go. I look forward to listening to the dev story just to see how the different versions came about and how much input Sid Meier actually had into doing those things. The Pirates Gold version from GOG has a bug in it, for me anyway, where I push escape and I get lots of heights, which is great if I wanted to cheat, but I really don't want to cheat that game. I wanted to play it. So I stopped playing that when that happened. Overall, I think despite that, the game really hooked up. If you can put up with the controls, having to read the manual, it's really good. It's got trading, exploring, permaconsequences, quests, and even romance. Of course, the brutality of piracy is handled in a very Disney kind of gamey way, but... The setting seems really accurate. Perhaps my nostalgia is the one talking, but I still think the C64 original is the best one. Or the rest up Amiga version. Unless you've got a better config file up your sleeve for the DOS version. Anyway, speak to you again, Joe. Bye. See, I told you the C64 music was better. I knew it was. God, it's like a symphony. It's like a Beethoven symphony compared to the, the scratchiness of the whatever little music snippets were in that uh, that DOS port. And um, I guess don't quote me on this, but I believe that Sid Meier actually was involved in every version. Maybe not in the actual you know, physical like programming of the ports. Though I figure early on, in uh in in the days of the first pirates porting into the pc booter and porting it for, you know from the uh the c64 to the amiga and and stuff and the the 93 dos version i'm pretty sure he was involved in those and the 2004 version was actually put out by firaxis which i forgot to mention which obviously is, is sid meyer's company he made after he left microprose and i believe again don't quote me that he was involved in that one as well so i do think that this is one of his near and dear to his heart uh, projects. I guess it was one of his first kind of unique games that wasn't just a, a vehicle sim. So very, very cool. Thanks for that. Thanks for thanks for sliding in that music. I'm very pleased because I was very sorely disappointed with the music in the DOS version. So big question time. Does Pirates hold up today? Yes, it most certainly does. After a few minutes of figuring out the somewhat quirky ship controls, because you have to remember, whatever direction your ship is pointing, if you turn left on your joystick, that's your ship's left. It's not the left of the screen. So sometimes you get a little balled up that way, and you know, pushing forward, pushing back doesn't really do a ton. It took a little while to get a hang of that, but 
once you get used to that, this game is awesome. Now, I'm talking about the 1986-1987 version here, guys. After those few minutes of figuring out how the controls work, I forgot about the old graphics, I forgot about the quirky controls, and I got involved in this game. It's addictive. It's deep. It's testament to how Meyer got the equation right the first time. It honestly felt to me after a little while like I was playing a modern game. And not not that I was playing a modern indie game that's trying to look old. I forgot the game looked old. And I know sometimes I can get caught up in nostalgia, but I didn't ever play this original version back in the day. I think the first one I really touched was the 2004 version, which I also enjoyed greatly. This game is a big recommend. The only negative thing I can have to say about the DOS version is what I just said. The music and the sound are pretty awful. But even there, and uh, Paul here, this might be a little answer to your question about configs. Um, Apparently, if you get the GOG version and you either load it up via your own DOS box install or your DOS box UI like I have, or you go in and edit the included dosbox.conf file just straight in the GOG install directory, you just need to tell it to emulate a Tandy and choose Tandy graphics in kind of the game start. And if you do that, you will apparently also get the the Tandy soundtrack, which I think is a lot more equivalent to uh, to the C64 one that we heard in Paul's voicemail. Now, these are unconfirmed reports, but I may give it a whirl if I have time. This just came up while I was writing up the show, um, you know, not in my playthroughs, though I probably should have taken a look beforehand. But again... Try Pirates if you haven't. All the iterations are great. Frankly, I like the first one even better than the 93 remake. I have the 2012 version on my iPad, which I really want to go and fire up right now again because I got all excited about it. Try this game. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So I've chosen a winner for the Sam and Max giveaway that, uh, that I did in the Willie Bemis show, and it is... Brian, congratulations, Brian. I've already sent him off the, uh, the keys to him. And, uh, I hope Brian, you really do enjoy some, uh, some telltale Sam of Max. They're really, really fun games that I think they do capture the kind of the, uh, the humor of, uh, of the original. So that is that for the show. It it turned out to be a way longer one than I thought it was going to be, but thank you again. I know I spent some time at the beginning kind of blathering on about, uh, about my health or whatever. Everything's on the mend. Everything's great. Um, thank you everyone for waiting patiently and for the thoughts and all that stuff while I dealt with my little issue and uh, we're back on track now. So next time I'm excited and uh, I want to get right to this is uh, is something a little bit different, something I haven't really touched before. I'm doing a racing game. Yep, we're going, uh, going with Papyrus or Papyrus and uh, we're going to do Indianapolis 500, the simulation. So that should be a lot of fun. So I'm looking really forward to hearing your thoughts on, on pirates as if anyone else has any additional stuff or your thoughts on Indianapolis 500 with an email or an audio comment. Love those audio comments. Send them to podcast at umbcast.com. Thank you to Rick Moyer for all his great audio work, all the transitions and everything like that. Find his stuff at moyermultimedia.com. Check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash UMB show, not cast show. That's the only place where it had to be different because of some guy named Umberto. And uh, you can also follow me personally at twitter.com slash Billy Bob four, seven, six. 
You can find the show on Steam at steamcommunity.com slash group slash umbcast. Uh, it's actually been a little bit of activity there lately, which uh, which I'm liking. I got to pay more attention over there. And uh, you can definitely follow the show on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast, where I've started putting up some uh, some playthrough videos. Not started. I've continued. I really got to change these show notes. <laughs> but yeah, I'm having a lot of fun doing those um, those playthroughs and having people on the Twitch stream and and all kinds of stuff like that. So really, really enjoying those. As always, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher Radio, leave me some reviews. They make me really, really happy, especially if they're five stars. So that is that. And we will see you next time for Indianapolis 500, The Simulation, here in the upper memory block.
Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.